You can almost smell it in the air, can't you? You can smell the change coming. You can smell the state of the universe has a new episode, and it's coming out right now. Episode 82, featuring the great Dr. Brian Keating, who is a Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. And that's a lot of words. Now, Dr. Brian Keating is an expert on all things cosmic microwave background, okay? The light at the beginning of the tunnel, if you will, that is the the uh, evolution of the universe. And Dr. Brian Keating studies the cosmic microwave background and tries to infer information from it. Like, what was the universe like in the very, very early stages of its formation. And we talk some about that in today's episode, but we primarily talk about something that is more culturally important, I suppose. And it is the idea of confirmation bias and groupthink in science. Now, many people look at scientists as this perfectly unbiased uh, person working in a lab coat somewhere, you know, charting through the scientific method to come up with beautiful theories about describing reality. But that is anything but the truth. In fact, the scientific method is kind of a myth in and of itself. And we talk about that. What is the scientific method? Do scientists even follow a method? Okay. How does science plot along and learn new information? It's something that isn't as intuitive as one might think. And so we discuss that a lot. And we discuss how we as scientists can go wrong how we can follow a dead end for way longer than we should ever focus on following a dead end. How do we get caught up for generations in trying to prove something that is patently absurdly false? We've done it in the past. In the age of Galileo, we've done it. In the age of Einstein, we've done it. And we continue to do it today, even though we might not see exactly where we're doing it. And so we talk a lot about that. We talk about how you sort of attack that issue from the scientific aspect. And then we talk about how some of the broader cultural problems of the, of the day, things like cancel culture, things like groupthink, things like uh, wrongthink, if you will, or wrong speak, where your ideas, even if they're not particularly controversial, can be shunned because they're not maybe the ideas of the time. They're not the popular ideas that, that everyone agrees with. And how does that manifest itself in science? Does it manifest itself at all? And how do people navigate it? How do people, you know, is there this concept of wrong thinking science? Can you find yourself on the outside looking in of scientific inquiry, um, even though you're not necessarily being very anti-scientific? So these are all important questions of our time and, and questions that people, young scientists, old scientists, people outside of science have to navigate as they sort of, you know, weave their way through the universe. And I think it's a very important conversation. Normally, when I go into a conversation like this, I have a bullet point list of topics I want to cover. I have, here's what I want to cover, here's what I want to cover, here's what I want to cover, and then we go through it in a conversationally way, in a conversationalist type of type of manner. I had that this episode, and we didn't touch on a single one of those bullet-pointed ideas uh, in in the fashion that I intended to. Instead, we just talked. It might be the best conversation that the State of the Universe has ever had. Um, and that's because Brian and I are good friends and we just mesh together when we get on the microphones. And I, and I think it worked out really well. So with that being said, 
support his show uh, Into the Impossible. Great podcast. It's like exploded over the past year. He has everyone you could imagine on that show in the field of science and outside of science in the zeitgeist of, of the public sphere as well. And so it's it's a great podcast. Um, his book, Losing the Nobel Prize, is potentially the best book covering these topics that we're talking about right now, in addition to a whole slew of important science about understanding the early universe and how confirmation bias can lead you astray and lead you to lose the Nobel Prize, if you will. And so with that being said, please rate and review the show five stars. We all know this is a grade A filet mignon podcast, okay? Medium rare, grade A filet mignon of a podcast, and that's what it is, okay? I'm glad to be back in your life. I know you've all been stuck in your house for 800 years. I know that the quarantine is never ending. It's never ending, okay? You're staying in your bed and on your couch forever, okay? Do you have bed sores? You do. Are they going away? They aren't. Are you going outside anytime soon? You aren't. Now, with that being said, please subscribe to the YouTube channel for Brian and for me. You might say, Brandon, there's no videos on the YouTube channel right now. What's going on? What's going on is someone told me that the music I was using was copyright free. Turns out it wasn't. Am I going to jail and being sued for it? Yes. Did I have to take down all the videos? Yes. Am I going to be in Guantanamo Bay next week getting waterboarded? Yes. But the good news is I look forward to it because I've spent months inside now. So I'm actually looking forward to getting out there, experiencing the world again. I'll be on a beautiful island, on a beautiful island. I'll be in, in a prison. I'll be able to talk to other people. It'll be, I'll have water in my lungs. And I, frankly, am looking forward to it. So with that being said, uh, check down in the description for all the links to all the stuff Brian does, for all the links to the stuff I just asked you to do. Rate and review the show five stars. Love you, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Brian, welcome to the show. Today is an insane day, okay? I wake up to find that the water main outside of my house, my apartment, is broken. And it's broken. And sometimes when it gets cold in the winter, things break, and it broke. Water's spewing everywhere. There's 18,000 construction workers outside. All of the loud noises you can make, they do make. All of the noises that will be troubling to a recording that you can make, they do make. And that's an issue, okay? Then... Stock market dies, all the money I have in there, dead, gone, see ya, okay, Robinhood just shuts down, everyone stops, everyone sells, except me, I'm the only guy who didn't sell, so I'm the only person on the planet right now who owns stock still, and it's zero dollars, it's worth zero dollars, so I will be dressing up as the dude with the horns and the buffalo skin, and I will be going to Wall Street after this podcast, so look forward to that, and then I want to start with, uh, something you've been doing recently, which is cool. It's something called deconstructing the dialogue that you've been doing on your YouTube channel and and your podcast in general. And you have been deconstructing the dialogue, if you will, of onto chief world systems by Galileo. And so I want to start there because this book seems to encapsulate everything I'm interested in as a scientist. Now, I'm interested in black holes and pulsars and, and all the stuff I study and I work with on a daily basis, but I'm also incredibly interested in the philosophy of science, how scientists can be tricked, how we communicate science effectively, why do scientists know what they do, why do scientists think the way they think, how does the scientific method work? All of this stuff is incredibly interesting to me, and I love to learn and I talk about it. And so I... I it appears to me that you like the same thing. And so I want to start there. Why is this book so important to you? 
and what made you start delving into it again in the year 2021? Yeah, this is an excellent question. Of course, you know, it's one of the most uh, well-trodden tales in all of science that Galileo was tortured, imprisoned, uh, you know, hung by the rack or his thumbs or whatever they used to do back then, literally getting medieval on him or post-medieval. Uh, and it was all for writing this book, right? You know, this, this poor scientist was tortured uh, merely for espousing beliefs that went counter to the imperialist, you know, uh, patriarchy of the time. And it turns out nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and in fact, uh, reading it again as an adult after having tried to get through it as a younger person, but not making it all the way through, but really buckling down to make it all the way through, <clears throat> this time revealed to me more than ever why Galileo uh, is my hero and why he will always be my hero because he had he had it all he had everything that I aspire to and more his intellect it, uh, was razor sharp he was deferent but he was egotistical he was uh, he was humble and yet he was incredibly impolitic and impertinent uh, there are all too many of his human foibles that go into it and you really can't get a sense of it merely by, you know, reading the treatments of his work by other people and the hagiography of him, which in some ways is, is aptly put, is, uh, is sort of a disservice to getting to know him as a human being, which actually made him much more impressive to me now, especially as a mature scientist. Uh, but uh, but I think for all scientists and what really was the obstacle, Brennan, which is so you know, kind of foolish and childish is that I couldn't find this book on audiobook. And I'm, I'm like, you know, th this book is printed on, you know, this, this, this gauzy paper and it's, uh, 587 pages long. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I, I haven't read that many books like that since I became a scientist, uh, that are this long that aren't textbooks. And even the textbook Jackson's behind me, you know, you plowed through, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yes, of course. Um, you know, that might be 700 pages, but you don't read the whole book. It's not like a novel or something like that. This is unput downable and in a sense, but, uh, but I also, the way that I consume information, and, and you might be similar as a podcaster extraordinaire. Well, by the way, you're one of the people that really inspired me to up my game and to get great guests and to go deep as a human being. Uh, in particular, your interview with Ray Weiss is is a legacy interview uh, that really inspired me to do an interview with him. And so I want to thank you for that. Uh, and um, I won't tell you that, you know, what, what he said about me at the end, although you might have watched it, uh, he thought I was pretty good. So uh, that's the highest encomium one can get. But anyway, like you, I'm sure we consume things as we produce things, namely orally, a you orally. And we speak a lot orally. Mm -hmm. or, um, and so I look for the audiobook version of it and found it not. Uh, then I look for the uh, the Kindle version of it so I can read in bed. You know, this thing is heavy uh, and uh, and I couldn't find it. And in a sense, I'm glad I couldn't because I end up taking, you know, literally thousands of notes on this. But it inspired me to do something which is to create the first audiobook ever made of any of Galileo's works. And the hope is, with help from my listeners who have reached out to me, and, and, and maybe even you'll get interested in this, we're going to translate all of Galileo's books, none of which are quite as long as this one, and this is the longest one of all of his books, uh, and some say the most important. We're going to translate that, make audiobooks, make Kindle versions of it, and in so doing, we're going to bring it to a, a completely different audience, perhaps an illustrated version of it as well, perhaps a course, you know, where we sit around and we talk about it. 
mm-hmm. because I think these are the kind of conversations that made me want to be a scientist in the first place. And if you, uh, I know you're like me because you, as I said, you inspire me to do new things on my podcast and everyone should subscribe. I'm going to post it on my channel. So immediately subscribe to Brandon's State of the U- uh, Universe uh, channel on iTunes. Leave a review for him as I have uh, just a phenomenal superstar, rising star, uh, although you're pretty high up. You're not reaching your apogee yet, but you're getting there. Yes, uh, I appreciate that, Brian. Hopefully, by the way, you call me in a podcast extraordinaire. Here, I'm using the wrong microphone in the intro, so hopefully, it sounds a tiny bit better now. Does it? Oh uh, no. Well, we yeah, it sounds fine. We all we all make you know uh, we all make some yeah. limitations in our in our knowledge. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Now I will say like um I have like branded my skull with Ray Weiss and what he said to me after the interview too. Because he was a very, very kind – he like spent a couple minutes going over how good of a job he th- – and you could just tell he's so like nurturing as a as an advisor, as a professor, as someone who oversees uh, young researchers. He is unlike many people in this field that I have met uh, in the way that he recognizes – I'm reading this book right now, complete aside, about leadership. And one of the great things about leadership is – it, the leader needs to be able to take people aside and positively re- reinforce them. And you can tell that Ray Weiss has like built that into his, uh, his spirit. So I appreciate that. I'm, it's excellent that I, uh, that I motivated you. Um, I wish you would have motivated me during the, the pandemic because you were on fire during the pandemic and I was the opposite. You know, like every other day, I was like, I, I think I averaged like maybe one episode every three weeks during the pandemic because it was just, I just, I don't know. Sitting in the house is just not not great. But back to the the Galileo, I think it would be fantastic to do a series where we, um, not we, maybe you actually really do the audiobook, uh, sort of um chapter by chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, or even interspersed throughout the chapters, we break to a, a group of scientists who uh, I'd be happy to partake, or you know, if you want to get other people, that's whatever. Um. And then we discuss it, sort of break it down, the, the actual scientific underlying aspects of it, and also the societal aspects. So things like confirmation bias are so prevalent in this work. Things um, like how you take two seemingly um, obvious observations in the universe and make it such that you know one of them has to be wrong. You have to be uh, biased in seeing that some way. Um, for example, two, two objects falling at the same speed, even though they're different masses. Um, that's not a real phenomenon, right? Um, or rather that is a real phenomenon, forgive me. Uh, but people in Galileo's day might have not known very much about air resistance and so may have literally been tricked into believing that objects with different masses do not fall at the same. You know, you drop a, a feather and a penny. On the moon, you might have a different result than if you drop them in California, for example. Um, and so, no, this is all incredibly important information, and I'd be happy to collaborate with you on this. I think we could find an excellent panel of physicists, science communicators from all across the, the realm, if you will, and, and come up with something really cool. I think yeah. we could absolutely come up with something. So, yeah, count me in, man. Count me <laughs> in. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I found that, you know, it's, it's interesting because you get all sorts of reactions. I should say that the thing that prompted me to reread this book was really this appearance that I made on a uh, on the book club, which is a production of Prager University, yes. which is definitely a you know right right of the of the center 
uh, outlet for for information for short videos and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's got you know almost three million subscribers and gets about almost two billion views a year. I'd already made a a Prager University video entitled uh, "What's a Bigger Leap of Faith, God or the Multiverse?" Mm-hmm. that received about five million views uh, so far on different platforms. And um, and with that, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of uh, attention that comes my way from doing such videos. The one I did recently was about the Galileo's uh, dialogue on two chief world systems. And that's kind of an unusual thing. You know, people think of, oh, he's just a right winger. But he's actually incredibly interested in all different branches of of culture. And the point that I wanted to make is that this is a book of culture. This is mm-hmm. not just merely a science book. And so as such, it could be discussed with anybody. And actually, it's turned out to be one of their most popular videos in this genre uh, receiving in in under a week over 1.1 million views of a 30-minute video uh, dialogue between me and Michael Knowles, who's another conservative um, pundit and has yeah. become a friend. Uh, and and this topic of, you know, uh, of whether or not we can have a dialogue, first of all, what does it mean to have a dialogue? What does it mean to be a scientist and have scientific dialogues? And it's just funny to, to see co- uh, colleagues and friends, quote unquote, Twitter friends, I mean, you and I have never met in real life, but we will someday. I'm, I'm confident of it because I want to. But yes. there are people on Twitter I could care less about. And they're, oh, are you really on Prager University? Oh, it's, oh here's yeah. here's some. I was going to ask you about that. Stupid exactly. ad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we could definitely talk about that. But but it's just funny because they never watch it. They just they just right. comment on, oh, it's supported by oil billionaires, which is not not correct, factually. Yeah. Um, but uh, but of course, you believe everything on Wikipedia because it's, you know, the source of all knowledge is the easiest, lowest hanging fruit that mm-hmm. someone can consume. So yeah. I, uh, you know, I've lost friends over the, these things. But, uh, you know, I kind of view it as a filter, <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as a filter of filtering out people that aren't really worth, you know, having in my virtual life. And so yes. for that sense, it's good. But also it's illustrative because it sees it reveals all the biases that my so-called scientific friends have and even lay people that you should trust, you know, science and that science is monolithic and scientists, you know, listen to evidence. And I'd rather have, you know, answers, you know, that uh, uh, questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned like you religious nuts, like um, some mm-hmm. sort of religious zealot. Anyway, these all kind of, um, you know, conspire to me to be really kind of delicious. And and the icing on the cake is that, you know, this month, this quarter has been really prolific for me in terms of output in that I'm featured in this, you know, traditional values, kind of conservative, um, you know, outlet, namely Prager University, which is, you know, has a pro-theistic, uh, monotheistic slant, ethical mm-hmm. monotheism. And then I'm featured on the cover of uh, Skeptic Magazine, which is a far, you know, different uh, type yeah. of venue. And yeah. it all involves these types of biases that scientists are susceptible to, just like every other person out there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's excellent. And I don't think that any scientist should ever think, like, w- what are the values of the the people that I'm presenting to? Assume, assuming they're not insane. You know, I'm not talking about don't go talk to literal Nazis, maybe. Or do. Yeah. I mean, or do. Um, because today you could use an education, too. Um, but but you get my point. It's like that is a weird thing to me, and I struggle with that a lot for the position I'm in because you are uh, – this is true of academics. I'm, I guess, scared of the cancellation that might come, um, and I'm not scared, necess- scared necessarily. I'm not like I don't – my heart rate – my heart's not racing. I don't think I'm going to be – but you know, I realize that that's a very real phenomenon now, and so y- you are in a situation where you can maybe collaborate with PragerU or something like that. But oftentimes I feel a little apprehensive about doing that or posting certain things on Twitter because I'm not in a situation yet where 
I am, I guess you'd say, financially, like truly financially independent. The show makes money, that sort of thing. But but um, I really do feel like politics is becoming an important aspect of making a career in academics. And and I do see a lot of that like apprehension to do stuff like PragerU, and it makes no sense to me because the entire point of me forming the state of the universe was that if you look at where um, science denialism – and I don't really like that term anymore because it's been politicized and weaponized, and, and that's not the way I mean it. But people who generally are, are not interested in science is what I mean. You find those people in very rural areas, at least I do, and those are the areas I grew up in. And so I started the State of the Universe with the goal of reaching those people and talking to those people. And if the only platforms you're willing to talk to are far left, like podcasty platforms about science, you're not reaching anyone that isn't already interested in the subject matter, yes. which defeats the entire purpose of even talking about the science. You might as well just not even have a speak. Just don't talk. You just don't right. do the outreach. So uh, I think we're very similar in that mindset. And um, yeah, so I, yeah, I do. It, it does. I mean, you, you should, you know, I'm not going to advise you that you should, you know, uh, just like torpedo your whole, you know, career, whatever connections you make. Uh, by the way, you know, I always say my podcast isn't political or it's politically neutral. And that's because I'll have people like Ben Shapiro, uh, Dennis Prager, Michael Knowles on. And I'll have, you know, Eric Weinstein. Here's Noam Chomsky. He, he's mm -hmm. on the podcast for a second appearance coming up, hopefully soon. Um, and, you know, I have these people. I, I don't talk about their political views, some of which I find you know, odious and and mm -hmm. um, and uh, unserious un and not worthy of of uh, you know discussion. But I am fully interested, and I you know I'll I'll defy anybody who says I can't talk to somebody. And this is the whole notion of cancellation and and book burning and so forth. That's really kind of medieval getting on top. Except now it's coming mostly from the other side. You know, it used to be the McCarthyists were were kind of burning books mm -hmm. on the right, and I had on you know Dave Rubin. And, you know, people like him and, and other people, you know, who are saying their books are being banned and canceled and, and their book deals are getting canceled left and right. And, you know, how unscientific is that? How ignorant is that to cancel someone because of ideas? Yes, someone's actively advocating to do public harm. I would never have such a person on. Um, I find that morally reprehensible. I wouldn't use that. But on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm not – people have criticized almost any, any kind of thing that you can imagine that I've had on. They just disagree with it or they'll, you know, put up uh, some some trolling comments. But um, but I've learned to, like, defy that, you know, notion of not reading uh, comments because I think it gives – it bolsters, if you will. Maybe I'm subject to my own confirmation bias, but it bolsters the idea that people that actually care – and are willing to change your opinion. You know, my litmus test is if I debate you, Brandon, and you're going to convince me of your radical right-wing ideology to follow the guy with the horns uh, to uh, to glory and victory, uh, I will listen to you if and only if I feel like you can change my mind. And if I am honest, I have to do an inventory um, on my soul. In Judaism, it's called the mm -hmm. you know, counting of the soul. Yeah. Am I really going to change my mind listening to, to them, uh, to, to Brandon, or, or listening to Ben Shapiro, or listening to Noam Chomsky? And if not, I'm not going to debate those, those sorts of issues. You know, they're not, they're not going to convince me to convert to, you know, Scientology. It's just not going to happen. But, yeah. you know, if they want to talk about scientists, you know, that's something I'm willing to listen to. And not all, you know, kind of critiques are equally valid. But, you know, once you get above this certain threshold, they call it the Overton window, you know, where it's like how impermissible on the left is your opinion to somebody who's on the right, for example, and vice versa. Yeah. 
but I find, you know, the only kind of polarization I'm interested in is of the cosmic microwave background and not necessarily about politics left or right. So I try to have an equal balance, half and half. Uh, but even so, I'm finding it very illustrative to do what makes me feel good. So I always say, you know, like my my days are spent far more often on telecons than telescopes. And that's exactly the opposite of what I thought being an astronomer would be like. Right. So a lot of times I have to talk to people, you know, at, at different agencies and organizations and logistics and and stuff. It's not all looking through at my non-existent stubble, stroking it and looking up at the heavens. It's very mundane. You know, it's yeah. looking at, oh, well, is this concrete and this water chiller going to get paid on this invoice or are they going to stop deliveries? And it's, it's very mundane. Mm-hmm. I have to do it. I have to do it. I don't want to do it. I have to do it. It's just like exercise. I have to do it. It's sometimes I don't want to do it. But when I talk to people like you, it's because I want to talk to people like you. And that's kind of been my fuel in the past nine months of what I call pandemic podcasting. And yeah. so I look at it and I say, do I want to talk to Bryn? Yeah, hell yes. If it's a hell yes, I'll do it. Yeah. No, I I, I think that's – that's uh, and I think that's sometimes why I get tired of podcasting I, because I, I do kind of you know make sure that certain guests check certain boxes and – and it can make it not fun. You know, if, uh, if you're only talking to people with a very rigid set of ideas, sometimes it cannot be fun. And, uh, I, that's just, I guess so. Maybe I should take a note out of your book and, uh, and, and branch out and try to get some, some different. Look at it like it's an experiment, you know, yes. look at it like you're doing an experiment and, and some experiments fail. Most experiments fail. Take it from me. A of course. Failure. Yeah. And, um, and just do, you know, do a hundred episodes, do a hundred podcasts, do, you know, find the people, do branch out of just pure science, branch out of cosmology. I know. I know the weird part about that is though, the name of the, the show, right? The state of the universe. So it's like, it's a damn astronomy show. What am I going to do? I thought about literally making a second show, which was no different than the first show, but it's called The State of the Multiverse. And <laughs> the, in that show, I would talk to people outside of astronomy and physics. Um, but even that might be a little too – I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I don't, I don't want to you know, make, make pronouncements as if I'm an expert. I've grown really rapidly – uh, putting game stock share price to shame uh but uh but i treasure all my my listeners it's actually you know what i found is is half the work is making the the episodes but really if you don't do the other half which is marketing and promoting them uh it's really almost like you're not you're not going to get anything done it's it's yes. a case where you need 100% of the of the uh vectors to be pointing in the same direction and if you don't you know, you'll get some traction and you'll get some feedback and view. And maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't want advertisers. And, you know, that that's a sure way to turn a hobby into a hassle. But nevertheless, um, you know, we all have realities. We have to make ends meet and we have to um, make an accounting of our of our material souls as well as our as our uh, otherworldly heavenly souls. And so I would keep doing stuff. Yeah, if you want to talk, it doesn't matter what your podcast. No one's going to say, oh, well, you know what, Brandon? Your podcast called Say the Universe, which definitely means that you're talking about cosmology, uh, just as Brian Keating's, you know, is about into the impossible, which is who knows what the heck that means. Uh, but, but nevertheless, you cannot break out of it and have Noam Chomsky on or, or whatever. No, no, not at all. In fact, what I like about it is, and I found this to be true, I had on um, David Kirtley, who's the proprietor of the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. He was on my show. I was on his show mm-hmm. earlier last year, late last year, rather. And, um, yeah, he has on everyone. Paul Krugman to me to Sean Carroll 
to uh, you know he uh, you know he's just an amazing guy. But one thing he he tries to weave through is he he loves to geek out on science fiction. That's his that's his bread and butter. But he uses that as a delivery vector to get into conversations with people like Paul Krugman that he might not ever have yeah. access to. Yeah. So the lesson you're telling me, Brian, in so many words is I need to stop being a bitch, and I will do that. Okay. I will do that. Well, maybe that's not. Maybe we're not allowed to say that. I don't know. I don't know what's allowed to be said anymore, Brian. But I won't cancel you. Don't worry. Let's um, let's relate your experience. Do you hear this construction outside? I hope it's not too loud. I hope you no. can't hear it. Um, good. Friends of the State of the Universe, I interrupt this podcast to tell you about three other shows that you should be listening to. First, Into the Impossible with Brian Keating. If you're not listening to it already, why even listen to this podcast? You clearly love Brian Keating if you've made it to this point, so you better listen to his show too. Number two, Why This Universe with the great Dr. Dan Hooper and Shalma Waxman, friends of the show, if you will. And number three, Daniel and Jorge explain the universe. The reason I tell you to listen to these shows is because we here in the scientific community have decided that we need to band together to make sure that the best science spoken by the best minds on the planet Earth gets to your ears because if you're listening to this clearly you love science and if you love science there's no lack of it in the podcast universe so let's relate this book to your real life experiences so i have losing the nobel prize right here yeah. i was flipping through it again i read i think i read it twice now fully it's a it's a fantastic yeah. book can't recommend it enough um and you sent me a, a couple copies that I've given away to listeners on the Patreon, so there's a plug if you want to be on the Patreon. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's relate that experience because in in the book um, on two chief world systems, it's uh, describe the book quickly. It's Galileo coming up with this dialogue where you pit geocentrism against heliocentrism. Is that right? Yeah. We're, yeah. Exactly. He calls it you know Ptolemaic or peripatetic. But it's exactly right. It's, you know, it's a threefold dialogue between three of Galileo's BFFs. There's mm -hmm. Galileo, here's uh, Sagredo, and here's Simplicio. Of course, Galileo is not called uh, Galileo in the book. He's not that arrogant uh, to do something I would do. But he calls uh, the character that best represents his perspective, literally and physically, uh, called Salviati, which kind of mm -hmm. means like the savior, the saving one. And then Simplicio is like the moron. Uh, Simplicio is like the simpleton. And he puts this three-part dialogue, which is uh, which is very unusual nowadays, but back then it was a little bit more common. And he actually used this format twice in his writing career. He wrote like 15 or 20 books. Uh, and I intend to go through and make audio versions of them all. Uh, sort of my contribution, my my mm -hmm. my work, my uh, what, what do you call that? My um, beatitudes or whatever towards the Saint Galileo. Yes. Um, and so yes, yeah, so it's a dialogue in three over four days, and each day they discuss different aspects that are for and against Aristotelian or Ptolemaic or, or geocentric cosmology, arguments for it and against it. And um and in the end, I'm not going to spoil how it actually ends, but it's it's not at all clear that uh, the arguments put forth by the brilliant, otherwise brilliant Galileo um, actually are dispositive in any way towards what the what the resolution that we now know to be the case is the sun is not going around the earth, uh, but it is uh, essentially the other way around, although not exactly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exactly go around the sun, but that's a that's a side note. Yes. Yeah. So y you talk about this book as being sort of the epitome of of 
popular science books. Yes. Um, you're you're a big fan of the way that the scientific method is broken down in almost a, again, a, a dialogue as opposed to a bullet point or a rigid set of, of ways right. in which you should go about science. And that is a great telling of the human side of science because in the human side of science, there is no – like you, you don't walk into my lab at RIT and and see like, OK, we have to make a hypothesis. Okay. After the hypothesis is made, we have to, uh, you know, do make observations and test, blah blah blah. We there's no. You don't. I, I, that's what I do. That's, as soon as I go in, I put on the lab coat first. <laughs> yes, of course, and the goggles, uh, and a mask. You better have your mask on. Um, and so that's not how science works. In fact, I often talk about on the show the fact that the scientific method is is kind of not even a, a real thing in the truest sense of it. From the top down, it's real. From the top down, there's a method of our madness. But if you look at the greatest scientific adventions and inventions of all time, what you find is that the ways in which they were found, it, it's generally not always a theory was made that, that theorized a prediction could be made and then the prediction was was true and then Voila, we have something that's accepted by the community. A lot of times this stuff happens very happenstance, very oddly, very out of order. You can look at the CMB, for example, right? The CMB is a great example of there was a prediction made that something like the CMB would exist, but the prediction was wrong, right? The prediction was like 30 Kelvin or something like that. Um, and so the, the, and then the people who actually found the CMB weren't even looking for the CMB. So it's, the CMB is a, is a great example of the way science has no true methodology. It has a forward progress, but I think it struggles to have a methodology. And that book covers that perfectly because it's saying, here's all this information we have. How are we going to get a result out of this wealth of information? And the way in which you get the result, again, is a transitional period, but in no way a methodology. And it really tells the human side of science, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually doing another video, a third video for Prager University, <clears throat> and it's tentatively titled, you know, Scientist Says Don't Trust Scientists. <laughs> uh, because in reality, the least likely person to trust a scientist is another scientist. You tell of me course. something, Brent. I don't yeah. say, I don't say, oh, oh, Brent, Brent told me, you know, he's this brilliant guy. He's at this top notch university. Oh, yeah. Okay, fine. Straight yeah. to publication. You know, so I make the point that scientists don't trust it. And uh, don't trust other scientists. And that's not a bad thing because part of the scientific method, which you are absolutely 100 percent correct about, there is no such thing as the scientific method. Instead, it's an iterative process that itself is still being updated with a methodology. And mm -hmm. uh, but but generally speaking, it involves a couple of major points. And, and those are, you know, some sort of observation that alerts somebody to a discrepancy between an understanding that had been reached before by perhaps the scientific method, maybe not. It's only about 400 years old, and and since that time, you know, Bacon and and people like Galileo, and then Ibn Hayyam, and, and other people mm -hmm. a thousand years ago. Uh, but really, to test the hypothesis really requires experimentation, not just pure speculation. So that's what separates the Greeks, the Peripatetics, from the uh, from the you know kind of Galileos and the and the Bacon's and so forth. And that they were actually doing experimentation. But even mm -hmm. that is not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient in the following sense. Because a scientist might do a test and, and say, well, that test, you know, can actually confirm an incorrect hypothesis. Let me give you an example. 
I talk about this a little bit in losing the Nobel Prize. You know, you look at the sunset, uh, you know, here in California and the sun goes down, it gets kind of red. Well, the reason it gets red, you might correctly surmise, is because there are dust particles and aerosols in the atmosphere from mm-hmm. forest fires and whatnot. And because of that, uh, the the um, the scattering of blue light occurs more readily and we get more red light transmitted. Well, that's most consistent with a slab approximation. What's called the slab approximation. The atmosphere is a flat slab layered on top of mm-hmm. a flat earth. Well, doesn't that prove that the uh, earth is a flat uh, as a flat object? Yeah, it's much more uh, possible to confirm the flatness of the earth. And by the way, you know, scientists are not now saying out there that the earth is flat, but that hypothesis uh, would be bolstered by that observation. Here's another example. Um, a Michelson-Morley experiment done at my alma mater, Case Western right. Reserve University, mm-hmm. uh, that showed that the Earth is not moving with respect to the ether. In a certain sense, the Earth is stationary. One might conclude an early 1900 scientist, the Earth is stationary and is not moving. And of course mm-hmm. it is, but only under the incorrect hypothesis of the uh, uh, of the ether being uh, an active force in the universe. So the point is that you cannot have one simple definition of hypothesis, experiment or observation. Uh then in the 1900s a, a philosopher of science named uh, Karl Popper developed another kind of augmentation uh, uh, uh to bolster the scientific method, as I just described it, and that involved uh, and that involved the op- the opportunity for a theory to be falsified mm-hmm. as a criterion for which you should apprise its its veracity as a scientific field. And there are problems with that because, in addition to the observation and the experimental testing and deductive and inductive reasoning from the hypothesis to the observations and so on, uh, there was also consensus building that you have to build a consensus. Well, guess what? You know, back then and peer review, et cetera. So mm-hmm. who was the, who were the peer reviewers for Galileo? Were they just stupid idiot priests and, and, and popes who's a freaking moron? No, there were scientists. To this day, Brandon, you know this. There's a Vatican observatory that does amazing yeah. work with a 3.6 meter class telescope. Uh, why would they have that if they're this ignorami and, and idiots? They're not. They're very smart and they were smart back then. So guess what? Mm-hmm. There were scientists building a peer review case against Galileo using evidence that existed back then. So do you trust a scientist? They were scientists. Aristotle was a scientist. You know, he thought he was the first to discover that whales were mammals, not fish. He was the first to come up with the laws of logic that we teach to our children, you know, in high school to this very day. He also thought there were four elements and mm-hmm. that the our, our Earth went was the center of the universe because it was the heaviest natural uh, place for it to go. So science is provisional. That doesn't mean that if you think the Earth is flat, you're just as smart as somebody who thinks the Earth is a perfect sphere. We know it's mm-hmm. not a perfect sphere. Right. Uh, and so there are distinctions and refinements, but it's always provisional, and that's a good thing. And I think yeah. more people should know that. And that's really the subject of my upcoming video about, you know, tr- we hear this all the time, trust the scientists. Let me ask you, Brennan. I'm going to turn the table. Since this is partially an Into the Impossible podcast, we flip the script and, and, and put the guest on, on the line. I'm going to ask of you my final, my final three questions at the end for my Patreon subscribers only. Uh, no, I don't really have much of a Patreon. I have a Patreon, <laughs> but I don't, I don't get any money from it except for my mom who sends me bills. Uh, but um, I want to ask you. you know, <laughs> to be fair, my mom's a subscriber to my Patreon too. That is so true. yeah, mom club. Maybe your mom can subscribe to my Patreon. All right, uh, I'll <laughs> I don't think she's uh, going to after that GameStop fiasco. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, yeah, I hope she uh, she put all the proceeds into AMC. Um, let me ask you, when, it, when people say trust scientists or listen to scientists, what do you think they really mean? 
In today's world, you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, with Joe Biden I, or, or somebody else says trust yeah. scientist. So I think uh, Mario Cuomo, you're uh, Mario Cuomo. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Andrew, Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo. Yeah, yeah. yeah, your governor. So I, I have a um, a, a very well developed answer to this, and, and it might take a while. But my, uh, sim- like, if I'm boiling it down, I think it's a, it's a political malfeasance. I think it's a, a political ploy to say trust the science. I think, um, and I, I actually think it does a huge disservice to science because it implies that many of the the uh, Things that you are supposed to be trusting um, are finalized in the view of scientists, and I think that that is wholesome, a wholesome lie. Um, so when I think that people say trust the science, I think it's the same as them saying trust anything. Trust me. You shouldn't trust them. Uh, or you shouldn't trust me. You shouldn't trust really anyone without a a, a well-rounded, um, you know, sense of, or or sense of their history. And if you know anything about the history of science, you know that science does change. It does morph. It does. Um, now, you should trust, like you were saying, you should trust science as a as an iterative process. You should trust that we are as a community trying to get the right answer. Right. But you should not trust if I come up to you like you were meant saying and I say, um, here's some settled science. You should trust it. I don't think that's true. Right. And I think like there's a lot of places where the science is is just outright not settled that people are trying to convince you uh it is settled you know one of the more uh i guess um what's the word uh egregious yeah yeah i guess egregious but like egregious isn't i guess egregious i don't want to call it egregious because then I'll, I'll get murdered um but is is the idea that biological men and women are identical in every way i mean this people will tell you trust the science trust the science it's patently absurd that you should trust that science. And the reason it's patently absurd that you should trust that science is because that science is not settled science. Um, they've ch- very, they've, they've in essence done what people who deny climate change do, which is they've, they've plucked a very tiny subset of a field and they're citing them as the field. Uh, and it is a, an overwhelming lie. Um, and when so you look at, yeah, when you look at uh, the selectivity, of their reporting or, you know, is this replicatable? I mean, can you tell, I mean, I don't want to get too, you know, super controversial, but I will say, you know, it is possible to look at a a genetics of a human being and determine that it is a, you know, has two X chromosomes versus two Y chromosomes. That is Mm -hmm. a scientific fact. It is not possible to look and see if that person is black, you know, African black, American, but it's not possible to say there are no genetic differences. And that's why racism in addition to being a mendacious, evil, you know, falsehood, is is anti-scientific. So racism has no basis to say that. But then to say, as people do often, that because, um, you know, because of the historic, you know, sexism and discrimination against marginalized groups, we have to make sure that, you know, people who have, uh, you know, what, what's now called gender dysphoria um, used to be called, you know, something something else. You know, because of that, that we we want to make sure that these people are treated fair. Of course, we all want that. We all want them to be treated yeah. fairly. But mm-hmm. we shouldn't say that science is used to do that. And I feel, you know, like when when you see things like that, I don't know how seriously people will take that. I do see things that worry me nowadays. Like we're going to have a computer science search, you know, and and the people, you know, it'll be studying uh, anti-black racism. 
And, you know, yeah. that that's the goal of like no one ever hired me and said, you're going to do cosmology research. And I don't even care that it's about anti-black racism. You know, I'm, I'm a lifetime member of the National Society of Black Physicists as an honorary member. I speak at their conventions. I'm a huge donor. You know, my personal whatever meager personal scrimpings I have uh, mm-hmm. to their to their annual meetings. And uh, and I love it. I'm an active participant. We start. But, you know, to say to say that I have to study contribution, let's just say of, of African-Americans to cosmology. I think, you know, even even even, you know, I, I would start to, to question, why am I being hired? You know, is this scientific? Mm-hmm. Are you interested in computer science? Are you interested in cosmology? Are you interested in social science? We can debate if that's an actual, uh, you know, an actual branch of legitimate science. But yeah. but to me, this listen to scientists really means obey scientists. And that's Correct. the thing I'm worried about, mm-hmm. uh, because if you look back through the history of science, uh, from, uh, you know, from the Middle Ages of actually since the, uh, since the scientific method that we just, you know, kind of uh, loosely sketched out, uh, you come up with people like, uh, like Trofim Lysenko, you know, like, uh, like, you know, who is the architect of the, of the, uh, you know, basic massive famine that killed, you know, millions of people in the Ukraine and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You find people like Fritz Haber, you know, who's a, who is a Jewish, a German scientist in the 1900s who came up with the, uh, Haber Bosch process, Fritz Haber, uh, that enabled us to eat breakfast this morning, you know, because right. it was responsible for the mm-hmm. fertilizer process that feeds literally half the food, half the earth is fed by this process. Now, he was a scientist. He won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1918 Mm -hmm. after developing, advocating and personally witnessing the utilization of chemical gas warfare that killed 50,000 or so allied troops in the trenches of of northern Europe in 1915. So he's a scientist. And actually, ironically, macabre irony, um, many members of his own family were killed by the same Nazi government that came to power afterwards that used the same chemical that his company had invented as a pesticide called Zyklon B. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can't hold him responsible for that. But you ask, well, he's a scientist. Should we listen? There were three other Nobel Prize winners that he recruited to participate in these shock gas troops that the uh, that the uh, German army put together in World War One to the contravention of the 1908 League of Nations Treaty prohibition against their use, which Germany was a signatory to. So I don't have any faith in scientists' wisdom. After all, yeah. science means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. Right. Yeah, I think that they're like I I I I'm very troubled as well by um the the left the leftist party in America, and I don't know if this is happening across the world. Um, of them owning science i think that's very problematic because you have a, a party that in the last 10 years has actively pushed pushed uh you know uh anti-gmo legislation has actively pushed anti uh nuclear energy legislation and so you have a, a party that y- you shouldn't trust them when they say trust us for scientists you shouldn't trust them you simply shouldn't um and i'm not saying you shouldn't trust them on every issue i'm, a, I'm like a classical yeah. liberal I am a so I and I often I've recently discovered this. Uh, I was listening to a podcast. It was uh, I forget which podcast it was, but I recently discovered this phenomenon where people get out of jail and then sue their uh, their public defender. Do you know that this happens? Mm, um, no. So so this happened. They people will get out of jail and sue their public defender for giving them a bad sentence, as opposed to suing the prosecutor. The reason why psychologically is that they don't blame the prosecutor the prosecutor was doing the job 
their right. their job. They blame the public defender because the public defender failed at their job. And I equate my feelings to the political left saying trust the science in that exact frame of mind. Mm-hmm. I do not fault members of the right for being anti-scientific in some of their viewpoints, which I think that on some of their viewpoints, I think they are. Um, and I'm talking mainstream sort of right-wingers are anti-scientific in some of their views. Um, I don't blame them for that. I, I would like to change their mind. I would like to talk to them. I would like to discuss it. I would like to find out where our differences arise, but I don't blame them for that. Yeah. As much yeah. as I blame the left, who is my public defender, who has failed me, who has convinced society at large that they are the party of science without actually being scientific in a number of ways. So I feel a – people on Twitter often think I'm like a right-wing nut because of how much I criticize the left. I hate these people sometimes because they're taking um, what I consider to be the party that, that should be standing up for people, that should be working – to spread science amongst the population, and they are discrediting it all, and it yeah. angers people. The watchdog. They should be the watchdog. They were traditionally in the watchdog. That's what I'm saying. It's been inverted wherein people had a notion that the right, the McCarthyites and so forth, and even my friend Eric Weinstein, who agrees very wholeheartedly with you, you know, when I ask him, well, where's the danger on the right? He'll point to this, you know, Cook and Coakley thing of 1970. You know, it's like before mm-hmm. I was born, let alone before you were born. And that's like the most recent thing on the right. And then on the left, it's just like he, he just goes off on them because, like, you know, for example, he doesn't get invited anymore. He used to have friends at the New York Times. They did a cover piece on him a couple of years ago on this intellectual dark web, which is comprised almost entirely of people on the left. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam Harris, him, his brother, Brett, um, et cetera. And um, and slowly this became uh, he became persona non grata and that perpetuated this cycle where now he cannot get invited on left wing shows, um, MSNBC and New York Times podcasts, et cetera, NPR. They won't call him. They don't give him the time of day. And so what's left for, if he wants to spread a message, which he views as valid, is he gets invitations from Glenn Beck and Ben Shapiro and, mm-hmm. and other sorts of, of people that are certainly on the right. Now, what does that do? Well, that just gives intellectual fodder for people on the left to say, see, you only go on on le- on, on these right wing crackpot shows." So it's this perpetuating cycle of, again, what is it? Confirmation bias. And so, you know, you and I were talking before the show about, like, is confirmation bias alive and well? I talk about it a lot in losing the Nobel Prize, how it afflicted me personally. And I think it's it's having, you know, one of the takeaways from my year of pandemic podcasting and talking to so many eminent people, including eight Nobel Prize winners, is uh, is this notion of groupthink and how powerful it is and mm-hmm. how how scientific stories might be going untold because they might violate a narrative which is believed to be preferable, natural, unique, etc. And I actually, you know, it's funny because even in my uh, in my non-political life, in my scientific life, I get crit- criticized for being you know, too much in the inflation camp or too much in the in the opposition to inflation, which mm-hmm. is the core science that I'm trying to do. And um, and it can be frustrating because I'm definitely trying to to keep uh, an open mind. And by doing so, again, as I do politically, it's not that I'm not political and I'm some you know milk white you know kind of, of bland, flavorless mm-hmm. person. I I achieve neutrality by wild excursions to the left and the right, you know, politically from Noam Chomsky to Ben yeah. Shapiro and from people like, uh, you know, Sir Roger Penrose and Paul Steinhardt 
on the left, I don't know, uh, uh, scientifically, you know, to people like uh, John Preskill and uh, Frank Wilczek and, and, and others on the other side that are, you know, conventional kind of scientific thinkers that, that uh, in, in terms of the narrative that dominates cosmology now, you know, Kamran Vafa and, and mm-hmm. Juan Alcena, that inflation took place, that string theory is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, you know, valid paradigm to approach the fundamental unification of forces. So I achieve neutrality, but I never give either side, you know, a free pass. And I criticize both of them or both of them legitimately, I believe, um, for some of the blind spots that they may have. And, and I yeah. think that's what makes it unique. You have to, you, you take a stand. You're not just like this bland, you know, kind of tell me why you're so great and why you're so brilliant. Uh, that's not the way I want to conduct my, my particular interviews or conduct my scientific research. And I think, you know, Galileo felt that again, I'm, I'm comparing myself a hundred percent to Galileo. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but well, I think your books have incredible similarities in the way that you break down the human flaws in doing this science on the big stage. So I, I think that that's a fair comparison in many ways. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I approach what, what he had, has done, but I do want to point out that, you know, some of the greatness of Galileo, again, stems from his ultimate humanity and his knowledge of human nature. But again, there he had huge blind spots as well. You mm-hmm. know, he had, he had this, uh, you know, this concept that, uh, you know, that he could say whatever he wanted to, uh, because of, you know, something that the Pope said in passing before he was Pope. And and that he could put the words of the Catholic Church in the mouth of a simpleton that everybody mm-hmm. knew he was talking about, um, you know, from those perspectives, I think, you know, he was he was very, uh, very naive, maybe intentionally so. And and nowadays, I think we have we have people like that as well. But, you know, what's so what was so delightful for me is that he would uh, he would look at questions that we wrestle with to this day. You know, for example, we think about um, we think about uh, the what's known in psychology as like denial of death. Mm-hmm. So I found this amazing passage that really spoke to me. And he goes, I, I found the deeper I go, considering the vanities of popular reasoning, the lighter and more foolish I find them. This is in the dialogue. This is a book about mm-hmm. like the orbit of the earth, the, the origin of the earth, tides. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> and he's talking about death and how people are naive. Mm-hmm. What greater stupidity can be imagined than by calling jewels, silver and gold precious and earth and soil base? People who do this ought to remember that if there were as great a scarcity of soil as of jewels or precious metals, there would not be a prince who would not spend a bushel of diamonds and rubies and a cartload of gold just to have enough of earth and soil to plant a jasmine in a little pot or to sow an orange seed and watch it sprout, grow, and produce handsome leaves, fragrant flowers, and fine fruit. This is not like, you know, some boring, dry, bland scientist. This is a man right. of erudition, a renaissance man in the truest sense. And I aspire, as I say, I can't write as beautiful as him. But uh, but he another another passage, if you'll indulge me, Brendan, he's yeah, yeah. He, he presages what we now call the Dunning-Kruger effect, which, mm-hmm. as you know, is, is something like the less you know of something, the more you think you're an expert. Of course. Um, and he we says, all learned that the hard way in, in this field. Yeah, and he goes like this. He says, the vain presumption of understanding everything can have no basis other than never understanding anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. For anyone who had experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing and had truly tasted how knowledge is accomplished, he would recognize that of the infinity of other truths, he knows nothing. 
And uh, this is just a, a mesmerizing account of things that took hundreds of years for social scientists to come up with. But um, the last thing I'll say is uh, towards the end, he says, um, uh, just as an illustration of how uh, amazing a writer he was, he said, I do not presume to be able to adduce all the proper and sufficient causes of those effects which are new to me and which, consequently, I have had no chance to think about. What I'm about to say, I propose merely as a key to open portals to a road never before trodden by anyone in a firm hope that minds more acute than mine will broaden this road and penetrate further along it than I have done in my first revealing of it. So this is this is like you can see there's a little bit of sarcasm. There's a little yeah. bit of hubris. There's a little bit of, of kind of ego. And then there's a mm-hmm. little bit of humility. And how amazing is that? You know, to have this book that speaks to me across the millennia, almost half a millennia. Uh, yes. It's just it's just it, there's no question. It's my favorite book of science, yes. including my own book. <laughs> yeah. And it speaks, it, you know, um, I don't want to hold you too long, Brian. Did, 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 you, yeah, did you? I have another 20 minutes. I can go. OK. Yeah. So um, one of the incredible things about the fact that it speaks to you across millennia is that it represents a scientific method. And the great thing about the scientific method and the reason it shouldn't be trampled upon by politicians or by scientists or by people with agendas of any form, is that as long as the scientific remains the iterative, holy process that it is, it will continue to inspire people millennia from now. Um, and it is not to be toiled with. Uh, it is a, it is because at the end of the day, the scientific method is as much human nature as, uh, as, as being hungry. I mean, th- this, the scientific method was how we found food. The scientific method was how we found clean water. The scientific method was how we found clothes. Yeah, and, the scientific... and nowadays how we come to decision about uh, consensus about climate change I mean, yes. and, and vaccines being safe. And yes. But, but my problem is that the more you tell people that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, things are subjective, that you can choose, you can do everything you want. And of course we can choose, but you can't say you know, scientifically that I don't believe a virus is causing this particular malady that's afflicting whose name we cannot mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we can't say that it's a ghost or it's a spirit. Um, but the same token is, you know, the people that will say on one day, they'll say, don't wear masks. Uh, and they do it for completely legitimate reasons. I mean, they did the same thing with secondhand smoke. Uh, when, when you were a little baby, probably, uh, you don't remember this, but they say secondhand smoke kills, you know, 50,000 people a year. They just ended up making it up in, in a certain sense because they felt that the outcome was more mm-hmm. important that we got people to stop smoking. And nowadays yes. you get like way more, uh, you know, videos and, and commercials, at least in California. I don't remember in New York where I grew up, but about the evils of smoking and nothing, absolutely nothing about the evils of drinking. Now, I'm not going to advocate people should go out and smoke six packs a day like my uh, friend and mentor Jim Simon does for the last 60 years. But nevertheless, I will say that from the perspective of, you know, what is scientifically true, how many people like beat up their wives and their kids, you know, after having uh, a pack of cigarettes versus a six pack? I mean, there's yeah. no comp. Com- so when people say that or here's my, here's another one of my favorite ones. You know, I'm a pilot. Um, so what's the first thing you do when you get on a plane um, uh, on an airliner? They say shut off your phone, put it in airline mode. Right. Yeah. So do you think that um, that first of all, do you think everybody complies with that? Renan? Oh, absolutely. I think I'm guilty of not doing it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, right. So, and and and, how many plane crashes have you survived so far? I've survived three, actually. 
You've been in three plane crashes? No, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm kidding, of course. All right, fine. Okay, so yeah, so none, right? So so the odds, and I'll tell you as a pilot, you know, that the that the, the possibility, the probability, the odds of getting killed in such a plane crash uh, caused by someone's inerrant use of a cell phone not in airplane mode are basically microscopic, infinitesimal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not giving advice, you know, whatever. I always comply yeah. with it myself and on my own airplanes when I do fly my own planes on those occasions. However... Um, the fact is that there's a reason they do it. it has nothing to do with the scientific cause and effect of crashing planes. And that's because mm-hmm. it's a way of establishing sort of authority of the c- commander of the of the of the plane, the pilots themselves yeah. and the, and the uh, flight attendants. They need to have an authority to tell you to sit down, put on your seatbelt so that you'll listen to them when the plane is going down because it ingested a flock of birds on each side of its wings. Um, and so for that reason, they view it as, well, we're going to say something kind of scientific, uh, but it's really mostly theatrical and psychological so that we will have control when we really need it. I feel like it's almost the opposite. Like the more you tell people things that aren't true in the name of science, it mm-hmm. may redound to a negative effect when science is really necessary, like curing a disease, combating climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And so yeah. – I, I am I'm wary of, of saying listen to scientists when it means obey scientists. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I do think that that is I think that that does drive a, a lot of science denial when you tell people, listen to the science, listen to the science, listen to the science. And then you have people saying, but wait a minute, the science doesn't really make all that sense. Like, why? Why are we uh, enforcing lockdowns, for example? Uh, the ordinary person, even if lockdowns are the better option than staying open. Even if that's true, you need to have public health officials and and scientists at the ready, willing to answer the questions that ordinary citizens have truthfully. These are not conspiracy theorists. My my mom asking me why she's not allowed to go to work is not a conspiracy theorist. Right. She's a concerned citizen. And yeah. our job as scientists is to communicate the reasons for the for for her not to be concerned or the risk that you're taking or that sort of thing. You know, I was a the other day I had discovered this great thing that's on the weather.gov. Mm-hmm. And you don't get snow where you live, but I get tons of snow where I live. Actually, in the eastern part of San Diego, we get a lot of snow. Oh, do you really? Yeah, there are mountains that are, you know, seven, eight thousand feet high. Yeah. 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 But, but anyway, yeah, not, not as San much Diego as proper. Yeah, yeah not true. San Diego. Not, yeah. Not um. Yeah, so we get a ton of snow, and I found this great model on weather.gov where you can click through the different amounts, and it will tell you the percentage chance of you getting that amount of snow. In other words, out of all of the models we run, 60% of the models indicate you will get more than four inches. And I was saying to my wife, I don't know why we don't communicate this to people on meteorological channels, because this is a great way for my brain to picture it. It's like, Okay, so out of 100 models that were run, 60 of them gave us more than four inches of snow. 40 of them did not. So then I, my scientific mind works really well in that. It's like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. uh, you know, but she, you know, she kind of illuminated me. Maybe this is my confirmation bias that ordinary people are just not taught to think like that. Like she, that does not illuminate for her anything else. She would rather the Weather Channel just give her a number. And so, um, it is a tough job nonetheless my point is to communicate accurate science to people the complexities that don't get communicated end up leading to doubt you see it in meteorology and you see it in climate and you see it in diseases you see it everywhere but i think it is a net negative to openly communicate lies or deception because you think it is for the greater good it is never for the greater good 
I, I believe it is never for the greater good. I agree. I think it comes back to haunt scientists as well when they yes. use these political pawns. You know, I make the point in this upcoming Prager University video that, yeah, if you if you uh, every four years we get told why by 70 Nobel laureates, 50 Nobel laureates, whatever, which one of the Democrats we should vote for. It's never been a Republican in my whole life. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering, well, is that because, you know, Republicans were so you know, so anti-scientific. I mean, you're kind of mentioning, well, they're not really the party. You know, I, I don't know if that's actually true, but but let's just say it's it's true. So we get told who we should vote for by all these Nobel laureates or they'll sign a petition. You know, we should be in the Paris Accords and we should be in the Iran Treaty or yeah. whatever. And they get political and we're supposed to listen to them because uh, of what is called the halo effect, mm-hmm. which is another form of anti-scientific bias. You know, Einstein was brilliant. He was, um, you know, he came up with uh, theory of relativity in two different forms. He understood the photoelectric effect, Brownian motion, et cetera, et cetera. You know all this. He also didn't believe in the uncertainty principle, basically. He didn't believe in, in what's called action at a distance. He didn't believe the universe was expanding. And yet, despite all this, he was asked to be the second president of the state of Israel. He was yeah. asked to testify about certain, you know, uh, the morality of using the atomic bomb, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I point out again, like I did with Fritz Haber, you know, Fritz knew a lot about the chemical structure of, of nitrogen fixation. He mm-hmm. didn't know about, uh, the, you know, the moral implications. And he died after uh, his, his, uh, his wife and I believe two of his kids committed suicide. Some say because of the guilt they harbored from their relationship with their father and or husband. And his, uh, you know, his insistence that it was actually okay to use chemical weapons, even though Germany had signed a treaty avowing to it. So, uh, and my point is, look at like William Shockley. Like, guy was brilliant. He co-invented the the uh, the transistor. He won the Nobel mm-hmm. Prize. Uh, he believed that African Americans are inferior to whites. Explicitly said it. And they should yeah. be encouraged using economic means to become biologically sterilized. I mean, can you imagine a more horrific thing? to uh to say about another human being which i believe is created in the image of god or, or whatever has infinite worth worth mm-hmm. beyond any anything else any human being i don't care what your color race creed orientation identification whatever okay so should we listen to him he's a scientist uh in fact he was so uh so uh, committed to this idea that he was uh he was the only known contributor depositor in what was called the nobel prize sperm bank uh, mm-hmm. It was called the Genius Factory. It was actually in northern San Diego County, where I am now. He actually confirmed that he did because he wanted his genes to proliferate so as to uh, accrue to the benefit of all mankind, as Alfred mm-hmm. Nobel put in his will. So I, I think we have to be very careful. Nowadays, James Watson openly says things about women that are horrific, sexist, disgusting. Uh, some say he does that just to get attention and because he knows he's not cancelable. Um, but yet we never retract these Nobel Prizes. We never take away this esteem, the highest esteem, as I write, the goldenest, the most shiny of all golden calves in, in society is the Nobel Prize. So much so that they get asked to opine on who you should vote for. So now let me ask you, you know, if, if you're going to outsource your political decisions to these scientists, sometimes you're going to get People that tell you you have to listen to the Shockleys and the and the Habers and the Watsons of the world. And I think that's inherently dangerous. And I think it's a sign of cowardice by politicians to say we're going to just do what the scientists tell us to do. No, I didn't elect uh, Fauci. He's not my he's not the president. I'm going to mm-hmm. you should be take advice from him. And then we sh- you should wait, uh, uh, President Biden. You're my president. Uh, mm-hmm. I, we elected you. 
And and the point is you're not out you're not allowed to outsource it this decision so that you could later say, well, we did what science told. No, you have to make judgments. You have to make wisdom based judgments. Yeah. That's why we elected you. Don't outsource it to unelected people, or else you could get rule by, you know, the scientists, just as a Galileo and uh, and others experienced. It's it's a very perilous pursuit. Yeah. No, I I I, I agree with you a million percent. And you know, I'll I'll say, you know, to go back to the weather analogy, I'll just I'll we can kind of end with this concept. If the if um you know the Weather Channel told you that we were going to get 18 inches of snow every time it snowed because they didn't want you out getting in a car crash, even though we were only going to get two inches of snow, I think after a single month you would not trust them anymore. Right. And that is what we don't want to happen with the scientific endeavor in general. When I saw publications like Nature, publications like Scientific American endorsing Joe Biden as president, mm. I was livid with this enterprise that I am a part of because this science does not endorse anyone. Science right. is not an endorsable th- or something that can be uh, endorsed or endorse somebody else. It's not science. Political. Yes, it is not political. And in making it political, you do what every other institution in this country has done, which is overly politicize every decision and make everyone on the other side distrust you. So I fear – I'm not hopeful at all. I think science is going to reach – and I've said this vocally over the past few months. I think science is going to reach an epitome of distrust in the coming years during the Biden administration. And I, and I think that that's not going to be Joe Biden's fault. It's not going to be Fauci's fault. It's it's going to be the way that average Americans blame science when bad decisions are made. When pipelines are canceled and people lose their jobs, people are going to say that was a scientific decision. Those scientists must be stupid and distrust the entire endeavor. And I will like to walk back something I said. I don't think that in general the right is anti-science. I don't mean to say that. Um, I think the right – is anti many things. I don't think they're anti-science. I don't think they're overly sexist. I don't think they're racist. I don't think they're any of those things. Um, I think that they look at sort of scientific advancement in a much more calculated, nuanced way than maybe people on the left do. I think that they say, well, let's use a pipeline, you know, something they might favor, instead of driving stuff by train. Because guess what? We're not going to stop using gas tomorrow. Right. Oil's yeah. not going away. And, and so trains this, are, are more dangerous. Right? Yes. So I think that they're uh, – I, I don't mean to say that they're anti-science, and I wish I wouldn't have said that, but I'll walk that back now. All right, so fine. Yeah. We'll retract that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean I think that there's no – there shouldn't be like science is, is political. In fact, my joke used to be you know, I like being an astronomer because no one looks up and says, oh, I hate that Republican asteroid, and I love that uh, Democratic comet. You know, It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it should be apolitical, and in fact, you know, for the, for the benefit of – you know, we always say – that um, religion should be kept out of uh, education. I believe that, even mm-hmm. though I might educate my children according to my my uh, Jewish faith. On the other hand, um, we never say, you know, we say it's good for religion uh, for us to have a secular government. I could not agree more strongly. I think it's mm-hmm. the best form of government is to have non, uh, uh, you know, have a, have a secular government. However, why is that not also equally good for science? And the arts to have it be apolitical. Why do we have, you know, politicians, you know, toilets that are in, in the art world, you know, that are called America that you relieve yourself on for a fee? You mm-hmm. know, and this is considered high art. Um, you know, why, why is art politicized? Why is science politicized? It's bad for art. It's bad for science. Just in the same way that education and government 
are bad when they incorporate religion and gods and so forth. So I do think that, you know, we should have separation of scientist and state, <laughs> you know, yeah. not that si- that we shouldn't have. I'm all for actually one of my, uh, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the, the widow of my advisor in graduate school, Francis Arnold, um, she uh, was was married to um, to Andrew Lang, who is uh, my advisor. Committed suicide, as I mentioned in, in my book. Mm-hmm. Very tragic event, um, and not the, you know the least of whom was affected was me, but but his family, his children, etc., and the whole world. But um, but she's now serving in the uh, office of of scientific advisors. It may be true that Biden is much more open to scientific advice. I I I, I hope that you're wrong. Uh, that it will be, you know, viewed as as uh, ushering in a new dark age, so to speak, where people distrust science. Um, but I can't really argue at this moment when people are really thinking that science is this magical capability to know the answers. And the problem is that scientists are cultivating that image. You know, mm-hmm. when, when I hear something like, oh, Professor Keating, I'm no Einstein. You know, I'm not smart. Some kid or like, I'll never be like that. You know, I had Jim Gates on who's the Ford Foundation professor at Brown University, a friend of mine, father of, of supersymmetry theory. Uh, and uh, and he said, well, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. <laughs> you know, It's like we do science a disservice when we say, oh, it's only capable to be done by these very specialized people with specialized yeah. equipment that have mm-hmm. access to specialized knowledge that you may not have access to, you know, Mrs. Drackler and, you know, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think it's I think it's uh, it does science a disservice. It excludes other minds. You know, from around the world who might not feel like they can do this because, oh, look at these scientists. They're never wrong. They always get things right, especially when they predict about the future. Nothing, as we know, as professional scientists, could be further from the truth. I wonder, Brendan, if you have time to go into the impossible with me. My signature. Yes, I do. Three and, questions. And, yes. yes. Before we jump into, into the impossible, okay. one final comment that I think can really leave this this state of the universe on a great show or on a great note, which is that. The fact that the left is willing to take ownership of science and the fact that the right is willing to try to fight that movement implies that both political sides really do revere science and hold it to a high regard, which is if yeah. we want to find a diamond in the rough, that's yeah. the diamond to find. Comity. That science right. is, is – But they is, should listen to each other. It shouldn't be like – you know, yes. when I won the – I won this presidential award for young scientists – uh, and I received it from George W. Bush. And I remember uh, a lot of my friends are like, you're going to talk to that war criminal. He's scum. He's scumbag. Right, far right, blah, 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 blah. And they were just going off and defriending me, deplatforming, whatever back then. Was, yeah. Right, what do you what do I'm back saying? then? You just don't talk to someone anymore? I don't yeah, I was just like, all right, you know. Take them off I, it's, not, it's like I'm hurting for people to talk to that are really right. brilliant people and, and that I enjoy talking. Remember, my, my first Keating's filter, Keating's razor, is am I going to – have fun with this yeah. particular chunk of 30 exactly. minutes to yeah. 90 minutes, whatever. Um, so just cut them off. Sorry, you lose. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really care. And that goes for anybody. You know, if if, if Noam Chomsky's not going to come on the show or if, you know, Chenk Uyghur or some guy in the left, they're not going to. All right, good. You yeah. lost on talking to to and having a good conversation uh, that is about the best of us, you know, about the mm-hmm. best of the human mind is when we explore its outermost boundaries. But, um, but you know, and then it was just funny to me to then see, you know, 15 years later, my friend saying, oh, Trump, why can't he be more like George Bush? Like the same people who were like <laughs> canceling yes. me uh, back then. Oh, like George Bush, you know, he goes to baseball games with Ellen DeGeneres and like, look at, look at her, uh, yeah. Michelle Obama hugging him. Yeah, it really was hilarious to see because I, I recognize that too. I, I remember George Bush being this, hated vilified character and oh, now yeah. he's looked back upon as this like 
And nice guess what, Brenda? With the, with the benefit of of uh, CPT uh, invariance. So what do you what can you predict 100% to be the case? Just based on this example that we just gave. And and you can add in Mitt Romney. Remember, like, you know, yeah. all the awful things he was going to do. Oh, and yeah. treat, but now he's like a hero of the Democratic Party as far as Republicans are concerned. So what can we now say? I think I, I this is a tough I'm, this is a bold prediction. But okay. I think can we say that Donald Trump will be revered in a few years? Yes, exactly. Yes. In like ten, <laughs> 10 years, everyone will look back on this and moment. Everyone and everyone is listening and to me. say screaming at us. You yes, idiots! You, he's of course he's worse than Hitler, as Spike Lee just called him recently. You yes. know, it's just like, okay, all right, well, we'll see what happens. You know, yeah. good luck. All right, let's go into the impossible because yes. I got to get get, get back yep. to the lab and meet with my grad students. I'm having so much fun with you. Let's uh, do it. But I want to make sure that we get to these final questions here on the Into the Impossible podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. And go check out all of Brian's stuff. We recorded another half hour after this where we went into the impossible. And you can find that recorded uh, half hour where we continue this discussion. Uh, and Brian asks me his three big questions for the Into the Impossible Patreon page. So if you want to hear that, you can go uh, subscribe to his Patreon. Um, and this will also be available on his youtube channel so go check that out into the impossible with brian keating listen to us talk some more thanks again for for tuning in 